Hi everyone, welcome to the AdSet podcast, supporting you, supporting students. We would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are the traditional custodians of the lands on which this recording is taking place and pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. In this podcast, our host, Matt Brett, chats equity with Dr. Lynn Martin. As always, make sure you check out our show notes for relevant links. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Matt Brett, and you're listening to another edition of a series of podcast conversations hosted by ADSEP, the Australian Disability Clearinghouse for Education and Training, and also supported by the NISHI, the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Education. I'm on the advisory group for ADSET, also an adjunct fellow with the National Centre. And amongst other things, I'm the Director of Academic Governance and Standards at Deakin University and a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. Today, it is my honour and privilege to be discussing equity with someone who has exerted considerable influence on student equity in Australian higher education. Or she may push back about what I'm about to say, Lynn Martin has, in my opinion, influenced student equity in ways that exceed that of almost anyone in the history of the sector. Dr. Lynn Martin Ayo, welcome to this AdSet podcast. Thanks very much, Matt, uh, for the opportunity to participate in this. In preparing for this podcast, Lynn, I've tried to piece together some elements of your career. You've had leadership roles at Flinders University, University of South Australia, University of New South Wales, the Higher Education Council, University of Melbourne, Deakin University, RMIT and TEXA. I hope I've not left any important institutions off the list there. Um, but I'd Given that's such a illustrious uh, career in, in higher ed, I'm sort of in, interested in your sort of starting point, your, your launch pad into the sector. Um, and I'm keen to, keen to hear of your first job and uh, whether that was the starting point of a, of a carefully nurtured um, ambition or was it a more evolving kind of happenstance that you went on to all those great, great roles uh, beyond that time? Um, well, certainly, uh, as one of my old bosses used to say, if you wanted to get to Philadelphia, you wouldn't start from here. And I think the start, um, my first job was as a tutor in applied maths at the University of Adelaide, uh, while I undertook a research degree in fluid mechanics. And that's not the most obvious background for a later career in academic administration. But uh, my first uh, job uh, was an academic job, a low level academic job. And in the early 70s, these jobs were of limited term. Uh, and the expectation was that incumbents would make a good start on a PhD while doing that tutoring job. Um, while they got some experience in teaching and obviously doing the research for their degrees. So after about three years, the intention was that you'd finish off a large part of the, of the PhD. Um, and then finish it up either by getting a job out in the general community or um, as a, a casual teacher in, in, in university. Um, so my original career hopes uh, were to get an academic appointment in maths. Uh, that was all I'd ever thought about. I loved maths and, and that was it. Um, but, uh, <sighs> Time has changed, and it's a long time ago now, but um, there were changes in, 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 the, um, in the way academic staff were appointed in the universities um, between 1971 and 74. And um, 
the availability of such positions, academic positions, was significantly reduced over that period, which was when I was looking for a job. And uh, I was working on a PhD at that time. But so my timing wasn't very good uh, to achieve this goal that I had. And I also made some other life decisions which damaged my potential to achieve that goal. So after three years, I wrote up my research for a master's degree and I left to, to take up a job as a trainee actuary with National Mutual Life Association. This is the thing that mathematicians often did because there weren't a lot of jobs around for mathematicians. That was quite an eye-opening experience for me, partly because um, they'd never had a female training actually before at that company. There was an expectation because I was female, I would make the tea for everybody. <laughs> so I, I sort of, um, I had never experienced anything like that in my um, working career up to that time. So anyway, I didn't like that job much and I moved on and I got a job my first administrative job at the University of Adelaide um, as a faculty registrar. So um, there went the ambition to be an academic in the future, um, having written up the master's degree. Um, I did need to find work. My husband uh, was writing up his PhD and he was on a Commonwealth scholarship and he was in the same field as I was. So we both were um, involved in fluid mechanics, research in fluid mechanics. And as our joint supervisor, as, sorry, the supervisor of both of us <laughs> said, well, you're both not gonna get a job in mathematics in Australia. And so, um, and of course the woman <laughs> gave up the academic career and um, so I suppose these are things that influenced my interest in being social justice, my own experiences there. But anyway, I, I started this academic, uh, this administrative career and I really didn't enjoy it very much. I suppose my feeling was that, I mean, I had a, a very, a good quality research degree in applied maths, um, finished it successfully and got the degree. Um, but administrators were treated sort of very differently to the rest of to the academic community. And so administrators were basically expected to be seen and not heard. And so it was a very different sort of administrative life to what we see in university these days. But I did learn something from this experience. I, I, I thought, well, there's no point in complaining about it. I don't like the job much. I applied for it and had to do something. So I sort of morphed the, the job into something that was of more interest to me. And my interest, of course, was quantitative. And so I did things like writing reports on uh, student demand and um, enrolments in the faculty. And the faculty had never had anything like that. And it was a faculty of science and math sciences. So they were very um, interested in this quantitative stuff. And, and so, uh, and I started to enjoy the job more because I, and, and, and the faculty, faculty members started engaging me more. So I suppose what I learned is um, 
You've obviously got to do the job according to the position description. But try and pick the bits of the job that you think might address your interests and, and get more enjoyment out of the work that way. So that, that was a good lesson for me. So this, um, this first job led indeed to a lifelong career in higher education and administration. I certainly got there by happenstance, um, not by design. Mm. And uh, I had to accept that I was probably never going to be um, the academic that I dreamed to be. I say, Lynn, I'm glad that you um, gave away a career in actuary um, uh, and banking and insurance <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, chose the path of, of higher education. But that, that point in time, in, in many respects, is such a... Uh, kind of pivotal moment in in the history of higher ed. We had in that period seventy two to seventy four. You know, Whitlam came in full free. Uh, uh, freeze were abolished. Uh, the oil shock and stagflation of the seventies meant that the sector didn't really grow uh, quite as much, or the university you know, part of the sector didn't grow quite so much. Um, and it's just amazing just how much things have changed since that that time uh, to to today, where we've got a mass universal uh, system and you know, not without challenges, but you, your career has, has spanned in some ways that, um, that elite model um, at, at the time of the binary system uh, to now a, a mass model with, um, with a unified system. Um, is there things about that change that are good, things about that change that are bad in, in some ways? Um, uh, any, any reflections on, on the, the, the decades in between? I mean, it was terribly interesting interesting time really to, to be working in higher education because um, I mean by that time I'd moved on to a different sort of administrative job uh, and that was with a coordinating tertiary coordinating authority in South Australia and so I was that was the first job where I worked on um, sort of an involvement with policy issues um, so, but, and, and of course, there was a lot of controversy in the sector, you know, generally. Um, I mean, Dawkins once said at a meeting that I was at, <clears throat> he was astounded at how the sector lay, just laid down and died effectively uh, in, in the face of his reforms. He expected sort of well-argued responses. But... Um, he said it was amazingly easy to get the to get the change through, you know, compared with all of the rhetoric that was going around, but no real action on the on the sector. So uh, I'm not as opposed uh, as a lot of people would have been in the sector at that time to, to the changes that were made. I mean, um, and I think uh, Dawkins' reforms have stood the test of time. You know, they. they it was the first time um, that uh, there was a real discussion about higher education contributing to the national economic framework of the nation. And, that, and Dawkins brought to that debate this, this sort of concept that a well-educated workforce um, would in, improve productivity of the nation. And an acceptance that uh, if... Um, Unless uh, 
unless changes were made and, and the sector grown in after many years of cutting, as you quite rightly said, Matt, the view um, that Dawkins had that Australia needed to be more competitive in the national in the international environment in higher education, I think was um, sort of underpinned and cemented by these initiatives. They were controversial things, as you all know, like um, the introduction of HEX, student demonstrations in, in, in the campuses and so forth. Um, but I think what, what all those changes did, even though they were very disruptive in lots of ways, um, was that it formed a, a decent financial base and and, and a sector of critical mass that did allow Australia to start competing internationally. And, and I think back to the days before that, and, and that just wasn't there in the sector. And if you see where we are now, and, and you might not think it's the best place in the world at, just at the moment, but you know, I, I do think that that formed the, the basis of a really sustainable higher education sector as those changes. So, I think um, the shift to, um, well, it was mass at that point, mass higher education, were necessary changes. And I think um, um, proof of their success has, has been the way the sector has developed and, and its profile raised internationally uh, with appearances of Australian institutions in the top 50 national rank international rankings and, and so forth. So I think they were very positive things, really. I think that the other things that, and of course I enjoyed this aspect of it and it suited my skills, but that there, were, there was much more focus on planning, institutional planning, and clarification of um, funding approach to higher education. It's hard to imagine it now, but in the days before Dawkins, um, the funding of particular universities was very idiosyncratic. There was no, you know, there'd be these discussions, these uh, discussions with uh, various councils of, of, of the, um, the tertiary sector, the universities council, the advanced education council, the TAPE council. And, um, you know, there wasn't much discussion with the institutions themselves about what their educational profiles would look like. And so, um, you never really knew whether University A and University B were funded on the same sort of rationale and, and, and basis. And so the relative funding model that was developed at that time was a, a significant development and it was a, a, a thing that was negotiated at great length. Um, and of course, uh, Dawkins reforms were what brought the equity agenda, really importantly, I think, into um, the planning approach and a small, you know, relative to these days, a small amount of quarantine funding was, was, was on, but it was very much at the margins, money at the margins. Um, so that was sort of the, the move from elite to mass education, higher education. And by the time the Bradley Review uh, was undertaken in 2008, Australia had reached almost universal participation levels. Um, and that, that again shows the, the, I think the success of, of the foundation that was laid by the 
but the thing, and, and it was very significant that Denise Bradley was chosen to lead the, the Bradley Review because of her very uh, great interest in, in equity and social justice. And so she was concerned that in spite of all of the efforts of, of um, money set aside, planning required in relation to equity, that there was still relatively little progress in improving the situation of designated equity. Some had, had prospered, and the, the, the old ones that were difficult to move were low SES, rural and Indigenous students groups. Um, so, you know, then we come on to the Bradley reforms and, and, and I think the demand-driven system was really quite inspired as a way of not having to um, justify equity uh, publicly um, by saying, well, there are caps on enrolment. So, you know, there was an excuse not to enrol students in these groups. If, if you didn't really want to be in the effort. Um, so I think the, the use of the demand-driven system as a way to free up funding in the sector, which is what it did, um, but also to allow, to remove caps on enrolments and allow, um, you know, encourage institutions to uh, get access to this funding by enrolling more students from this group. And I just think that was a game changer, really. Um, and I think that's an enormous positive. Even though it's still perhaps the, um, the movement in student numbers from those groups was still not as great as, as some of us would have liked, it, it did free things up. And I think that, that was a marvellous contribution to, um, to the future of higher education in Australia. So in, but in terms of some negatives, I mean, this all sounds very rosy and there were great initiatives that took place both in Dawkins and Bradley as a result of Bradley Review. Um, the ones that I feel um, where the governments really didn't take off the opportunity of the change in the policy framework, like the relative funding model had the opportunity, provided the opportunity to, to fund the newer universities, um, and the ones that used to be the old colleges of advanced education, um, there was an opportunity there to really balance the, the funding across the sector better than, a, than a, the way it had developed over the years. And, and in the end, the government decided it wasn't going to shift money around as much as expected um, and, and what the, the relative funding model was showing. So this is the teaching in relation to needing to be pragmatic about you want to, what you want to achieve because you would have thought the goal was there that they wanted to rebalance the funding in the sector but in fact in spite of all of the, the work that went into the relative funding model in the end notice was taken and of the objections from the older universities. And so um, they never really achieved the sort of absolute um, equality of funding that the model suggested. So that was, that was a disappointment, um, I think. 
And the same thing happened a bit later in about 1999 when they introduced a change to the research um, funding mechanisms and uh, that, that was a performance-based approach. And again, you know, all of the quantitative analysis and the um, policy analysis that went on suggested that there was a need to move money around. But again, the government couldn't quite bring itself to do that. You can understand why, but I guess it's one of the things I've learned over my years, and particularly in my time working at our education council, it doesn't matter how good your policy analysis is and, and the work that you, you're putting forward for, for policy change proposals. In the end, uh, the politics are really going to influence what we can achieve. And that was a hard learning um, curve for me. And I suppose one of the, the things that, having worked all this time at the Higher Education Council on the, the um, analysis of, of A Fair Chance for All Five Years On, uh, that report that I drafted um, hit uh, the, um, the government offices for approval just at the time um, of the change of government in 1996. And um, having worked under Labor ministers such as Beasley and Crane, uh, suddenly we were um, working at the Higher Education Council uh, to Amanda Vanstone, <laughs> who came in with an agenda that funds had to be cut and, and a, a government that wasn't particularly interested in equity. You know, it, it doesn't matter how well you do the preparation, in the end, that report didn't ever really go anywhere very far. And yet I think it was a very good report for five years. I think that um, report from memory for listeners' benefit is Equity, equality, and excellence. Is that? Yeah, is that yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a well worth well worth reading. We'll, we'll put a link to that up on the uh, the website for that. I think uh, that that sort of growth in Australia's productivity and, and growth in participation. It, it it seems that the only thing that's put a, a dampener on that is a is a global pandemic. Um, we've we've had a remarkable um, kind of ride over the last thirty years of, of prosperity as a nation. And I think the education and higher education reforms have played a really important role in that. In 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 my view. Across that time frame, you, you've alluded to a few kind of highlights along the way, but is there something that really stands out for you, Lynn? Um, was it indicators? Was it Bradley? Was it um, uh, early days at the University of Adelaide? What, what were, is there a career highlight that, that you kind of look back on really, really fondly? Um, yes, I, I think so. It, uh, uh, although, I, I mean, I must say that personally, that the time, the three months I spent working with Denise Bradley and the expert panel on the Bradley Review was, was one of the most interesting and, and rewarding of my time. Um, but that's not the example I to name. For me, it was quite early in my career, really, and I... Um, I accepted a job at the old South Australian Institute of Technology uh, as a head of planning and information systems. I'd, in the meantime, done a, a graduate diploma in computing science, and and so I sort of was interested in in um, getting data out of systems and so forth and understanding the technical aspects of that. Um, but the the thing was that I I made this move. Uh, to the South Australian 
Institute uh, in, I think it was about 1987. So it was just at the start of, of the white, uh, the green paper um, changes, the Dawkin changes. And of course, the South Australian Institute was very interested in becoming a university. Curtin had was the first one of the ATN, what would now be called the ATN group, but, um, to, to get university status in Western Australia. And um, um, of course, all the other states that had those um, uh, technological institutes wanted to achieve the same. Anyway, the, the time was absolutely right to sort of um, move into this um, this planning and information systems era, and uh, that allowed me really to use the, the studies uh, and, and gave me a, a quantitative job that I'd hankered after. <laughs> Um, but I suppose also um, the other thing that was happening um, was when the Dawkins white, white Paper was finally accepted in 1988 um, and uh, Dawkins started reorganising the sector by um, encouraging, and in the South Australian case, um, quite brutally forcing some mergers, that uh, it was the time that the, the um, amalgamations were going on and the University of South Australia was formed. And um, from uh, the old South Australian Institute and, and quite a significant pro proportion of what was known as the South Australian College of Advanced Education. And I mean, it was a terribly exciting time combining a career in quantitative, for me, um, combining a career in quantitative analysis development and management of admin computer systems. And then uh, when the new university was mooted, the University of South Australia it became, um, uh, I worked with Denise Bradley, who had come from the South Australian College side. Um, and, and we worked together on the first strategic, strategic plan for the university and, and a policy framework for the university. So all that work went on before the formal formation of the new university. And, and that's, that's terribly interesting to have, to be, be able to be at, at this working on those critical documents and critical policy positions for, the, for a, new, a new university, new organisation. And um, so uh, it, it was a wonderful experience for me in, in working on, on the establishment of that new organisation. But for me, because it was my first, I'd known Denise for some time because she'd been um, a senior staff member at, at the previous South Australian College. But um, this was a critical thing for my career. Denise was a, a wonderful um, supervisor. Um, and uh, uh, as you probably are aware, she was a fairly feisty woman. So she'd, she'd give you quite significant insights into the way to, if you, to get what you wanted in terms of policy issues through a, an organisation that in the early days was fairly uh, riven, you know, in, in, in the sense that 
the old South Australian Institute was a traditional technological institute, very male dominated. The South Australian College was largely a um, was largely a, a teachers' college, an organisation that had been formed by the merger of a number of teachers' colleges, and you know it was soft in the sense of not the hard sciences that were the, the centre of the institute. So it was a real challenge to get agreement to these proposals that she and I um, uh, worked on together. So uh, and Denise was a, a terrific mentor to me and um, she was at that time a member of um, well, one of the, the councils. She was a member of the TAFE Council um, of the universities council, uh, of the, uh, sorry, tertiary, the CTEC, the, the Commonwealth Tertiary Education Commission. And so she was very experienced in understanding how you got policy through. And she was very generous with that information. And, um, and it was great fun as well, because she's a, a woman who, is not afraid of saying what she thinks. <laughs> well, she, she was, I still can't think of her as, you know, she recently died and, and, and that's a terrible blow to, to the sector, really. But anyway, so, so that was my, I think that was the most significant period. And it was really exciting um, to work that way. And I guess that, um, also, and which is more relevant to this, this was the period that I actually got involved with uh, the project that ultimately became the, the Indicators Project. And, and you know that, and I think it's it's worthwhile noting at this point, but the difference between when I started my career, um, which is in 1974 as an administrator, um, by the sort of, well, I suppose it's 20 years, you know, 15 years, um, working in that environment uh, as an administrator but being appreciated for the contributions you could make to a new organisation was just such a different environment to what the administrative environment was at the University of Adelaide when I, when I started there. So, um, you know, I think that was a really good thing. And being supported in, in that, you know, I actually did have something to offer um, that I could, when I decided I wanted to put in a bid for some money in terms of this evaluations and investigations program that existed at the time, what was a real group change. I mean, it was being respected as, as a person who had something to contribute to the sector. I mean, I'd been extremely lucky when, uh, after the uh, after the uh, white paper was accepted, Dawkins set up a thing called the Performance Indicators Research Group, in, and that was done in 1989. And um, another great mentor of mine, Russ, Russell Linky, who uh, was one of the premier um, policy analysts at the time, uh, in higher education, uh, and Russell was my boss at, at, at a previous um, in my job at, at the Tertiary Coordinating Authority in South Australia, 
And uh, he asked me, uh, he recommended me to go on this performance indicators research program. And this was uh, quite changed. I was the only administrator on, on that group. And I was the most junior member probably by about 20 years, I think. <laughs> and uh, my fellow uh, committee members were mostly deputy vice-chancellors. There was one um, vice-chancellor on it. And they were all people who were actively involved in higher education policy analysis and decision-making in the sector. Um, Dawkins charged that group with, with identifying some equity indicators as part of the suite of, of performance indicators that he wanted to have developed. And um, obviously I gained confidence over this period because I argued quite strongly that I didn't think in the end the report of the research group paid enough attention to equity. This was at about the time uh, Fair Chance to All was being born. But all that the group would come up with and would agree to do was to have two indicators, and one which was about the proportion of female staff in the sector, and the other one was about the percentage of, of students, you know, female students in the sector. Because I know nothing about any of the other groups. And yet, you know, the other groups were being talked about at that time as part of the discussions that led up to their chance to all. So I, I argued and said that I didn't think that was good enough and that we should do a bit more. And Russell Linky, who was chairing the group, said, well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and if you want it to happen, you better do some work on it on your own and come up with proposals. It's not going to be part of this major report. So that sort of encouraged me and I got a bee in my bonnet about that. And so that's what led me to put in the application because I had some ideas about it. And, and ultimately I was successful in getting that grant. And again, this was unusual. It, it, was, it was unusual for those grants to go to administrative staff. It's not the case now. Well, it doesn't happen now because the, the program was dismantled after many successful years, but it became more common for, for good administrators to be able to win those grants. Um, but at the time, that, that would have been one of the first that went to, a, to an administrator rather than an academic staff. So I guess that, that, that period which involved doing core administrative and planning work for, for a new organisation and the opportunity to do this other work that was right at the centre of what was going on on the policy side at that time was, was terrific and lingers long in my memory as being uh, a very exciting and productive. I, I did have issues with my career in that um, I'd go for interviews for sort of standard administrative jobs and I would be asked things like, why are you wasting your time sort of flip-flopping between administrative jobs and these, and it was all said, these equity jobs. Now, they were never 
equity jobs. They were equity policy as part of the overall framework. It wasn't, it wasn't regarded as the most sensible thing to do, which I think is, is bizarre now, given the way my career ended up. Still flip-flopping at the end between the two. Yeah, there, there are aspects of that um, performance indicator work that so just, if you can just elaborate on a little bit more, Lynn, because I, I know that the, there were um, there was some dispute around what, what, what indicators should be in place or, or how they should be uh, um, uh, framed. And I, I think there's, there's a sort of teachable moment here in, in that experience for, uh, for people that are wanting to pursue a, a, a progressive or an inclusion agenda in, in higher education today. So can, can you maybe take us through in a little bit more detail uh, some of the, um, uh, the cut and thrust of, of that uh, equity indicator uh, work and project? I did the work on the indicators while I was employed as academic registrar at, at Flinders Uni. And, and the, because by that time I'd left the University of South Australia, by the time that was granted, and, and the money was granted, and I'd, I'd moved on to what I thought, about the age of 40, I thought, I have to I have to somehow get a real career position here, not one of these planning positions. So I, I, I got this job as academic registrar at Flinders. And and then because I suppose um, not because of the equity work, but I became quite well known because of that equity work. Um, because it, it was a great surprise to me really um, that the government was so interested in this. I mean it, it uh, I thought I was doing this job because it was something that interested me rather than what the nation needed. <laughs> but I discovered once I applied for that evaluations and investigations program grant and got it, that um, I did realise that the government was actually quite serious about, you know, trying to get a solution to some of these things. Anyway, it, uh, so the, the report was published and, um, and accepted. And one of the more controversial things um, was the issue of indicators and definitions related to students with disability. For some reason, um, a lot of the universities were not at all happy with what I'd come up with in terms of the definition and the indicators. And, and in those days, there used to be a, a statistics committee. I think there still is one, actually, but it's not quite the same. Um, statistics committee. And, and the problem was there was no collection of data about students with disability at all. Like there, there was questions on enrolment forms about um, Indigenous students and there were you know, self-identification issues. So it wasn't that as much but there just seemed to be a resistance to collecting any information from the students. Anyway, uh, at the time I was working as, as um, the counsellor or the senior advisor to the Higher Education Council, and I was representing the council on this statistics committee. And what was needed was this extra piece of information that wasn't collected by the Commonwealth. And, uh, so it was about quite fortuitous, really, that I, I had I was representing the 
Council this, when this issue of whether a new data element ought to be created and collection of information and these indicators for students with disabilities to be treated in a similar way as other equity laws. Well, there was great opposition from the Australian Vice-Chancellor's Committee, as it was known in those days, now Universities Australian. And it, it sort of became almost quite personalised, actually. <laughs> that, um, there, I, couldn't, I could never really understand why there was such opposition, but there was. And what probably disappointed the AVCC, as it was known, um, was that I was in a position to defend what I'd proposed. And so there were these lengthy arguments that these various statistics came in about whether or not this should be done. Um, in the end, um, the people from the department would, would have been called debt or, or teacher or <laughs> one of its many names around that time. And, that, and they backed me. Um, but I, I often think that if, if there just hadn't been that fortuitous um, coincidence of me being on that statistical committee to argue for it, we probably wouldn't have had the indicator. So they would have knocked it out. And, you know, the very sad thing for me was that some people right to the end of their careers that I'd been engaged in, in this discussion would never really forgive me for winning that battle. Well, I think many ADSAT listeners would be <laughs> enduringly grateful for your advocacy there. Was there a little bit of uh, Denise's feistiness or policy lessons of how to get things done that, that came out in you through that, through that time then? Well, I think so. I mean, I think um, I really, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't very proud of the definition I'd come up with. I, I thought it wasn't a very good job, but I did feel that it would have been a great, it, it would have been a great disappointment not to have included that group when it was part of a fair chance for all. It was clearly there in the policy framework. And while it might not have been the best thing, I thought it was really important there was some data collected. And this comes back to my emphasis always on data, but um, so that any progress that was going to be made, even against a fairly flawed definition, would be able to be there and measured and compared. And that, that to me was what was most important. And I think, uh, you know, that that's been proved. Um, so it's not just due to the indicators or anything, but the fact that it was on the same footing as Indigenous students. Um, there were students with um, NES, <laughs> non-Indigenous background students. Um, so there were other groups that, that didn't raise the same objections. And, and I still don't really understand, uh, except that I have observed at times when I've been dealing with student complaints in various organisations, that there still is a bit of a this sort of pervading thing that somehow, if you make adjustments to students with disabilities, this is somehow compromising academic excellence. And, you know, I, I just, I, I just can't. I just can't understand why people think that. <laughs> I mean, 
the most inspiring people, students that I've dealt with in my career are people who have overcome enormous issues with disability. You know, right at the start of my career, I sat on a, on a committee when I lived in South Australia that was to award scholarships to students with disability. And um, I mean, the most inspiring stories of achievement are really my students. And, and that was what was at risk, really. I mean, just, I, I just still don't really understand the objections, but, but I think you're right. I think if I hadn't worked with Denise, if I hadn't got braver by working with Denise, uh, and you know, I hung in there um, by the fingernails, really, um, to argue with the people from the ABCC because you know, they, they didn't expect the opposition they ended up getting. And I think they misjudged the extent to which the government was really interested in implementing this in the case. There may be some, Lynn, that never forgave you for that. that um, <laughs> That's uh, right important advocacy, but it, it, it didn't um, hold you back. And you know, not long after that work, you ended up with the Higher Education Council, um, which is uh, one way in which the, the, the government can set up um, yeah, coordinating or, or, or uh, engagement with, with the sector. And later on in your career, you were a taxi commissioner, um, a different uh, form of engagement with, with the sector. Um, do you have any reflections on on number one, that transition from uh, university administration and, and kind of policy projects with an equity slant to, um, to to being part of that 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 government interface with the sector as a whole, which has obviously evolved across time from HEC to, to Texa. Well, um, I mean, I think the HEC was an incredibly uh, interesting organisation. Uh, Dawkins has set it up and as as a very significant part of his advisory mechanisms. I mean, the traditional model is that the Commonwealth Department provides the policy advice to the minister. And, you know, there was a feeling, and, and we have to remember that this was in the transition from CTEC to the, to, to the administrators and government in higher education becoming um, part of the sort of mainstream government. So that the government, Dawkins decided he wasn't going to put up with CTEC anymore. And so he set up this structure with the Higher Education Council and the HEC was one of the many councils that existed. Like the State Council, Higher Education Council, the School Council, etc. And his view was that he was going to populate these, these councils um, with, um, in the case of the HEC, with academics, um, primarily senior academics who had an interest in policy, but were going to provide a, a perspective to him on what the sector wanted rather than what the department wanted or the bureaucracy wanted. And he used that very effectively. He, he put good people on the Higher Education Council and he consulted it regularly, I understand, in the early days. Um, by the time I joined the Higher Education Council in, in 1994, I think it wasn't working as well. I'm not sure that subsequent 
ministers, even though they were from the Labor Party, really understood the nuances of what he was trying to set up in that structure. And so there was a constant tug of war between the department and the Higher Education Council. And we did work together and, and I enjoy still good relationships with a number of people. David Phillips that I worked with at that time, he was on the departmental side. But it was always a battle. And um, uh, the Higher Education Council used to have quite a lot of difficulty getting access to the minister by the time I was working as the councillor. And so I don't think in the end it was a very effective mechanism. It was interesting as a place to work because you could, the council had the right to, um, to identify uh, issues for the minister's consideration. Um, but, but probably it was an unusual structure and uh, there hasn't ever been anything quite like it since. So uh, then uh, the working at TEXA, I mean, I was a, while the Higher Education Council had no formal decision-making powers, on the other hand, at TEXA, there was an act that, that gave TEXA a lot of power. And of course, TEXA arose out of the recommendations of the Bradley Review about a different way to think about quality assurance in the sector. But the TEXA legislation went a lot further and gave TEXA a, a lot of powers, including punitive powers if, if the riders didn't mind on certain things. So um, I, I felt, I, I feel that the Texa, um, and I, I worked there for five years um, at the end of my career um, as a commissioner. And I think the only issue there is that there's a sort of a slight conflict between Texa being a regulator with punitive powers and trying to encourage quality assurance mechanisms in the sector. Sort of, there's a bit of tension in that. Um, so I think it's very difficult to compare the effectiveness of those different approaches. Uh, but I think Texas has actually been very successful in the first five years of its um, existence. And that's largely due to good leadership by the Chief Commissioner and Nick Saunders. Uh, long used to be Vice Chancellor at the University of Newcastle, and Anthony McLaren, who came from overseas with experience in quality assurance in the UK. But Texas has been successful in um, building an international profile and also uh, getting, there's been adoption by a number of quality assurance agencies overseas of the approach, which is a standards driven system and with and being an organisation with strong regulatory powers. So, you know, I'd have to say that I, having worked in both places, that I think the approach with TEXA was far more effective uh, in, in sector, but it's, it's difficult to say one or other was, was better because they would, you know, have quite different intents. Um, whether it be the uh, a fair chance for all era um, or the higher education council or, or 
uh, Texa. At, at various points in your career, Lynn, you've, you've been involved in either running the projects or supporting the projects or selecting the projects. Um, and even with Texa, you, you um, uh, were running the uh, or leading analysis on student retention and, and success, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what a dwell a little bit on, on, on that sort of higher education project side of things to, to get a sense as to what makes for a good project. I mean, your uh, indicator f uh, framework um, activity has well and truly been integrated as, as part of the, the fabric of the sector for, you know, for, for, for 30 years. And um, not all projects get that kind of legacy. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you've got any wisdom to share with listeners as to uh, how to be thinking about uh, engaging in investigations and, and, and research that the that has a better prospect of getting funded or a better prospect of having a, a positive impact? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, I mean, as, as I've said in the earlier comments, that the time was right for the Equity Indicators Project because then I was naive about it. I hadn't sort of thought that the government was so strongly, was likely to be so strongly behind what, what I did in that project. But, uh, and I think that, that was a major contributor to why, you know, it, it was readily adopted by the government and uh, except for the small battle about the disability <laughs> indicators, you know, it was it was very acceptable. So, but I think the issues and, and when you're sitting there on a panel that's selecting successful applicants for these grants, I mean, at the time, these grants were expected to be in the evaluations and investigations um, projects and also there was another group called the National Priority Reserve Fund money. The government expected these to be very practical um, projects and so when you're there sitting selecting you, you find that again and again there are projects that appear of great interest to the individual that's putting it forward but often uh, it's not clear how that's going to benefit the government. Now, they're not successful in, in that sort of environment. That's very different from an ARC grant or, or, or other uh, pure research grants. And I, I mean, one of the things Denise taught, taught me because she'd been selecting these sorts of projects in the past, she, she said, you've got, to, you've got to make it clear how this is going to benefit the government. You've got to make it clear how this particular methodology that you're proposing or the approach that you're proposing is going to deliver those results. And you'd be surprised at how many, you know, quite experienced researchers who have put in um, applications for these would not actually address those two points. So I think, it, it, you know, the tip <laughs> that I would is that advocate for is that it's very important that um, if, you look, if you're trying to get government money for things, um, then you have to be able to demonstrate quite clearly how this is going to benefit the government. And it was partly because, and, and you know, I was working for Denise at the time, I put in the EIP project, and, and she had a good go at it when I did the draft, you know, and, and shaped it more and showed me how, how to do that. And that's why she was such a terrific mentor. Not often you get a supervisor who's had that experience. Um, you and Denise uh, joined forces again, as you said earlier, for the um, for the Bradley Review of, of Higher Education, and that led to demand um, uh, demand driven uh, funding. 
when thinking about something with with kind of policy impact that's going to again, lead to changes, it it, it certainly yeah, certainly changed the funding for equity and certainly changed funding for the sector um, uh, overall mm. and a massive expansion in the sector. So yeah, great great lessons there around you know, policy process that, that that led to that. But could, can you maybe reflect a little bit on what you think the long term enduring legacy of, of the Bradley reforms will be. Um, uh, we, we've had caps in place for a, for a couple of years, so demand-driven funding was a, in some ways a blip rather than a, um, yeah. a, a permanent sort of change to the system. But um, is there there's still a legacy there that, that will endure irregardless? Well, um, yes, I, I think so because, well, we, and also we have to put this in context because, you know, if, if we look back over the history of the, endless reviews of higher education that have taken place, not many of them have much longevity. I mean, the, the um, Dawkins ones are, are an extreme, one end of the spectrum where there's, there is still, you know, still basically the system until Bradley. That, were, that was the way things worked in, in Australian higher education. Um, and really, uh, the Bradley, I mean, it was 2008, and 2009, when the government accepted the recommendations. And really, it's only, as you say, it's been in the last couple of years. So they lasted about 10 years, really, which in the scheme of things in Australian higher education is, is a reasonable run. Yep. But, um, I mean, I think the, the innovation of the demand-driven funding system the understanding that something had to be done uh, through the through the regulatory arrangements to, I mean, it'd been odd decisions made in Australian higher education policy, for example, to allow higher education providers that were not universities to receive some government funding in some particular circumstances, particular fields, um, and also to give them access to Commonwealth funds in the terms of uh, loans, student loans. So, you know, there were, there were real areas of incoherence in the policy by the time Bradley went. And I think that was all sorted out um, through the TEXA arrangements. And, and I mean, whether, I, I still, I think that the, the regulatory arrangements uh, will uh, go on. Um, and I, I mean, I do think that people through the demand-driven system and the fact that there was a real focus with equity targets and things, even if those targets don't exist now, there is, that things have been learned through that. And now people talk much more about equity as a mainstream thing than they ever did before Bradley, even though that was one of the aims of Dawkins to get equity sort of mainstreamed into climate. So I, th I think, you know, I think that, uh, and I'm biased obviously because I worked on it with them, but, uh, I, you know, I think there were lots of good things. And one thing I learned about this was, was um, from, again, from Denise. She determined that a lot of effort had to be put into the way the report of the expert panel um, was to be formulated. And uh, what she said was, we have to put this together in a way so that it's a, a coherent story. 
what's what's the narrative she used to ask at meetings <laughs> what so, so what the question so what that you know so you can do all this analysis but so what what is the policy implication and what do we want to achieve here and so it was from formulated in a quite different way to the way I would have at first gone about writing the report. And, and what it meant was that these policy initiatives were all sort of linked together. Um, and so you couldn't just pick out the one about um, greater support for students, financial support for students, for example, without thinking what that was doing about participation and so forth. And so it made it extremely difficult for uh, the recommendations of the report to be cherry-picked and so forth. So, and I think that's one of the reasons why most of the vast majority of the recommendations of that report were accepted. And, and there weren't, oh, well, we're going to knock out the equity bit because it was presented as a significant argument for what was needed to make better use of the resources in Australia um, to improve the economic outcome. So, you know, it, it, it was a different sort of report. I think, it, you know, it was, it was because of her drive to do that, that a lot of the recommendations were accepted. And personally, I, I think there are many people, including myself, that have been able to refine and build their careers on, on the basis of that legitimacy of equity that, that um, the Bradley reforms uh, introduced and have uh, got me to a position where I'm having the, the fantastic conversation with you today and that's, um, I'm uh, enormously grateful on, on so many levels. But I, I, I do want to pivot here a little bit because a lot of the conversation so far has been around you know, national uh, challenges of coordination and policy and, and, and how do we get the sector as a whole to, to, to approach various things with some coherence. But you've also been on the other side of the fence. You've been there as part of the executive of, of universities and um, including Deakin, you know, where I currently work, uh, um, University of Melbourne, where I've previously worked as well. Universities, in my experience, are pretty complex beasts. They're, they're complex organisations. And I just, maybe if you can share with, with listeners, Lynn, um, what some of the challenges might be in in thriving in that kind of environment of, of, of operating at an executive level where you are dealing with that, that great complexity of, at, at an institutional level? Well, I think, I think always um, if you want to bring about reform or you're working for an organisation that's interested in doing things differently and, and so forth, so you're not a time-serving administrator. You, you've got a reform agenda and I think uh, both at Melbourne and Deakin, um, in my senior roles there, the Vice-Chancellors in both of those places were um, very interested in making their organisations different, trying to make them stand out in a way. So, uh, but I, so I think that to me, uh, as a person who wanted to bring about change, and quite honestly, to raise the profile of, of administrators, <laughs> In the decision-making process, um, I, I, I think the things that you need you need to, and this this is you know so um, this is just ordinary management speak really about having a vision, the need to have a vision for what you're trying to achieve, to bring the people that are working with you um, really with you, 
on, on achieving, trying to achieve that vision. Um, so I, th I think that those things which sound rather trite are very important because you know, I, I feel that you know, when I've been on the other side, if my boss hasn't been able to articulate what the, the purpose of what, what the group's trying to do, then they lose the people that are there. So I think you can't put too much emphasis on that need for, I guess it's leadership in a way, it's a, it's a need for developing a vision but gaining commitment of the people you're working with. I think sometimes, and I see it, you know, in senior administrators that I've dealt with from the perspective of being a commissioner and talking to people in institutions about things, that you you have to um, got to be not too removed from staff. I mean, I see a lot of senior administrators these days that seem to want to just say, well, yeah, well, I can't answer any questions about that. That's that's the business. Now, there's this fine line between delegation which has to be done and, and is absolutely necessary. And I have to say that I wasn't always the best at that. <laughs> but, um, you know, that is really important to be able to do that. But, but to keep enough knowledge, not, not to be all over things, but to keep enough knowledge to um, be able to defend a position in, in various committees and things like and this, is, this, again, is the challenge because in a lot of universities, even the senior administrators are not often part of some of these groups. You know, like if you take an academic board, for example, it's, it's often... Now, I, I always had a position on that as academic registrar, but, I, but in a lot of institutions, that's not the case. You know, it's, it's the academic community. And so for the administrators to have a real effect there, you know, they need to be able, you need to be have enough knowledge to be able to answer questions and to, to stop the inevitable madness that occurs on occasions in those organisations. So um, not very clear answer to your question, but the other thing that I think I would say is one reason that I've been a successful senior administrator is that I've been interested, even though I love the policy discussion, I've been interested in looking at really practical, implementable solutions to things. And an administrator that's able to lead a good implementation of a policy change um, is generally a fairly rare beast. They're either good, we're either good at, at devising esoteric policy or being very down in the weeds implementing. And I think you've got to get that balance and, and you're most valuable if you can get that balance. Seems like things have moved on um, an enormous amount from 74 as a um, administrator or as an actuary sort of being asked to make yeah. the, 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 the tea and coffee and, and, and whatnot. But <laughs> I, I think there's there's some um, great advice there for, for budding um, yeah, future leaders in the sector that might be uh, listening to this conversation. And from an equity perspective, it, 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 it sort of opens a question around how they might be able to position themselves to have 
um, a degree of impact and, and, a, and a degree of success? Is it is it as you say, sort of you know, thinking about the uh, you know, the, the purpose and, and the sort of esoteric sort of ideas and finding ways of getting things done? Or is it a question of them being able to persuade the people like you in the executive uh, that they need more resources or that they need um, you know, some, some sort of uh, policy change that, that they need to persuade you to, and get you over the line in amongst 75 other people asking for, for similar things to their own you know, special interests? So uh, um, it's a long-winded way of just sort of asking whether you have any thoughts around how... Uh, people might be able to get more attention for the the things that they care about in higher education. Yeah, well, I, I think um, I think one of the things is uh, that, and I suppose I touched on it slightly earlier. You have to have a really good knowledge of what you're wanting to propose, and you have to have thought of the arguments. You know, you need to anticipate the arguments that you're going to come up against in one of these environments. I I think that. The real challenge is to make sure that um, what you're proposing is not sort of so esoteric or framed in administrative speak or equity speak or, or whatever. doesn't mean you ignore the arguments in that, but you've got to stop the eyes glazing over if you're trying to convince, convince someone. So when you frame whatever you want to get through, it has to be through a committee um, sort of administrative nature. You've, you've got to frame it in such a way that the people who are making the decision can relate to. And it's that sort of, it's a bit like the applications for grants and things. It's about, it's about putting it in language and in context that isn't so drowned. Like for example, if we looked at equity, Sure, it's really important that people that are making those decisions on an equity subject understand the equity framework, understand um, the philosophy behind um, equity and equality, but they can't be drowned in, in what you might call the bleeding heart stuff. You've got to it's got to be framed in a way that they can relate to it and see it as worthwhile. And often um, young administrators, I think, make, make the mistake of thinking it's such a valuable argument, it's such an important thing that they, they sort of get lost in that rather than in the practical aspects that are going to be of interest to the particular audience. So, in, in in focusing on disability specifically here in um, universities are a complex context and you know, disability can have some you know, uh, complexity associated with that as well. You, you mentioned before some, you've been greatly inspired by, by some of the things that you'd, you'd been exposed to within your career, but is there something that, that jumps out as a particularly um, uh, important or, or um, a notable achievement when it comes to disability in higher education or, or, or even the flip side of that, a, a particular challenge that you think we really need to address as a sector? Yeah, well, I, I don't sort of feel as if I have um, led policy about improvements to disability greatly. I mean, one thing that I did do when I worked at the University of New South Wales, I worked with um, the equity unit people, including Jude Stoddard, who I thought was a very good equity officer a few years back. 
and uh, we really worked on trying to get to grips with the lack of money that was available and I, I, I'm a bit out of touch with that now but my feeling is there's still from the complaints work that I've done there's still some issues about uh, how the resources that are provided within an institution are, are allocated for students with disabilities. As you know very well that the supports that are needed differ very much in, in types of disabilities. Um, and there's, some, there's still some sort of like desire to be able to prioritise one against another and, and how that provides a pretty big challenge if you're trying to support as many people as you can who need this, this help. So I think um, funding, I, and, and it still surprises me that, and this comes out in some of the, um, the work I've done on complaints, that there's still a, a slight view that was almost back there in the original days of, of the arguments about whether there should be an indicator about disability, that, that somehow students with disabilities get free kicks academically um, by being given some sort of adjustments to do with um, either the time they have to submit work or um, to do examinations or whatever. And that really surprises me in this day and age, but I think it still is there a little bit. And, and that's a major issue to overcome. I mean, I think in my time, students have, the students with disabilities have, the, the participation has improved and some of the more, you know, really disabling conditions that students have, you know, those, those students, um, you know, have shown and it's, it's inspirational. I mean, some horrendously um, disabling conditions and, and the students have still managed to achieve with these, with these adjustments. But in some quarters in universities, still not understanding that, that this is to sort of redress a sort of systemic disadvantage. It's, it's, not, it's not about letting someone off lightly. And that, that disturbs me, and I don't know what can be done about that. I mean, you're the people that you're working with are the experts in this. It sort of disappoints me. Yeah, this is part of the reason why ADSET exists, to, to try and find ways of, of, of uh, systemically kind of raising awareness and, and building capability to, um, to support a more inclusive uh, you know, university system, but it's 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 a long, hard um, yeah. uh, road in some ways. But I'm very, very confident in saying that things are way, way better now than what they would have been back in '74. Um, oh yeah. Uh, uh, and there's there's still a long way to go. Uh, I'm sorry to keep referring back to that '74 moment, but I, I think it's just a, a nice uh, little conceptual anchor to say that that um, things have changed from. Uh, you know, the the sector itself, you know, gender gender roles and, and all sorts of things have, have changed a lot, and and the the status of the administrator in universities has, has changed enormously as well. Um, but e even 
with the positive contributions you've made, uh, my observation is, Lynn, that, that quite often you've been happy to just sort of take a bit of a, a back step and, and um, um, support the, um, the administration of, of, of good policy and, and good strategy, et cetera, and, and let the VCs and the DVCs take, take centre stage. So is that, is that something that we need to fight against or is that just part and parcel of, of, of um, being an administrator in university that, that uh, it, it's quite, quite legitimate that the, uh, that the academics um, uh, are the ones in the spotlight? Well, I think that is true. And I think you see, and in, certainly in my career, it's, it's waxed and waned a bit, the, the, the sort of the, the role that administrators have paid um, played on, on committees and things. I mean, uh, I'd have to say that the new universities tend to be more flexible about, in, this is in my experience, they're more willing to um, see administrators as equal partners. I, um, I mean, probably because I'm very old now and I, I do remember the pre-1974 days uh, vividly. That, but I still think that the administrators should be enablers in the broadest sense of the sort of academic purpose of the organisation. I do probably, you know, I always wanted to be an academic and I do still revere those people in, in, in the sense that um, not just because of positions they've got uh, and not that I think they're necessarily any better than, you know, the bright administrators or anything, but I, I do I do feel that if you're not there as an administrator trying to advance the the academic objectives of the organization and the academic achievements of the students in particular, then you know you're there for your own purposes rather than for the benefit of the institution. So I do feel that it's really important that as administrators we don't lose sight of that. And so I do think that it's still part, even though a, a lot of administrators are now equally well qualified as, as people on the academic side. But I, I do think that there is a sort of slightly subservient role still there. Not, not anything like it was in the days where you were sitting there as the faculty registrar taking the notes at the meetings and not not being, you know, you're sitting there silently raging that, oh, this is just an absolute mad decision or something and not being able to say anything to that effect. You know, you would never have been allowed to speak at a faculty meeting. So the, the, the world's changed enormously in that time. But I do think there's still a view that administrators are somehow not quite the same. Not all of the animals in the farmyard are quite equal yet. <laughs> um, well, one, one thing uh, your name is synonymous with is the Martin Indicators. We've, we've spoken about that at length. But uh, another thing that's, that, that your name is now given to is the Lynn Martin Melbourne Global Scholarship at Melbourne University. Um, can you maybe just tell listeners a little bit, little bit about that scholarship and how it came about? Uh, yes, yes. It, it, I can't take credit for... The establishment of this, uh, that credit is to be given to Professor Richard James, who 
um, was heavily involved with equity policy, um, both nationally by uh, working on various projects um, related to equity, but also uh, he led the university um, in uh, University of Melbourne in in uh, in developing its equity strategies to, for a number of years. Um, and Richard, uh, I, I was forced to retire in 2011 because I had a period of very bad health and I couldn't continue with my work. Um, so I decided I was retiring, which um, actually doesn't seem to have come to pass yet. <laughs> but um, Richard uh, wanted to recognise uh, my contribution to equity in the sector. And so he suggested that and asked me, would I be willing to put my name to this scholarship? And the scholarship was to provide so-called disadvantaged students or students from equity groups with opportunities to, with an opportunity to go overseas and study for a semester under sort of like a study abroad arrangement. But the scholarship was to fund their living expenses. And, you know, these might have been higher than any other student because of the particular issue. And there were students with disabilities that won these scholarships. Some were students who came from um, low socioeconomic status families and so forth. So um, it, was, it was, I thought, a, a wonderful suggestion because students from equity groups were generally not doing this with some of the more well-heeled and um, well-off uh, students that were part of the University of Melbourne profile <laughs> um, thought nothing of this, that, you know, that their parents would support them while they were off on a, on a, um, on a study abroad session uh, in, in a country of their choice. So it, it was a, a quite different approach to equity, and you might say it was at the high end <laughs> in one sense, but I, it, I was engaged for a number of years uh, at attending the award-giving ceremonies of this and the, and the students who had won the scholarships in the previous year would come back and talk about some of the things they had achieved. And again, it was just so rewarding to see how some of these students developed. I remember in particular a, a blind student that wanted to go to the US and his mother came to the award ceremony and she was so worried about how he was going to manage in, in the US. And he was a very shy man. And uh, I thought to myself, my God, you know, I, I don't know how he's going to manage either. But 12 months later, he came back and his confidence level had just grown so significantly. He'd managed, he'd, he'd coped with you know, considerable challenges in, in this six-month period that he'd, he'd taken and he was just waiting to go overseas again. And, um, and his mother was just delighted because um, she said, I never thought he'd develop like that in that short period of time of having to do things for himself. So it was a, it was a very 
um, it's a very rewarding thing, and I, I'm very grateful to Richard for suggesting it and to the university because it funded it. It found the money to, and, and the amounts the students got were, were reasonable, so they could live reasonably comfortably for that six month period overseas. So a very interesting approach to to to, to really enhancing the lives of these people who won the scholarship. A reminder that um, whilst we might think about the sector in terms of the hundreds of thousands of students that participate, um, at some point it does really get down to an individual mm. uh, level, level of, of, of transformation and, and, and benefit from higher education, which is certainly what's, what's kept me engaged with the sector um, uh, for, as, for the time that I've been part of it. Now, Richard was your PhD supervisor, as I understand it. So you eventually did get that, um, that PhD under your belt. And I did. The, the PhD process in some ways is a, um, a bit of a mentoring journey. And, and like Denise and maybe Russell and at other points of your career, you know, I wonder how Richard sort of stacks up to that. But I, I was just going to ask, what, how has that shaped your personal approach to mentoring? How, how have you learnt from... And Denise and others, and how has that shaped your approach to mentoring of your your mentees across your career? Well, I think, um, I mean, Russell and Denise, who both unfortunately are no longer with us, were very um, idiosyncratic people in a way. Uh, I mean, uh, Russell was, um, Russell certainly liked people to challenge him. And so, um, you know, and if you said something, he'd, he'd, he'd say, I don't want to hear that, you know, I, I don't want to hear a suggestion. I want the answer to how the trains run on time. <laughs> It'd be quite direct. And suppose, I suppose I've picked some of that up myself. I've, I've always tried to, well, I feel as if I've tried to mentor people that have worked for me and to give them opportunities. I mean, Russell gave me opportunities. Denise gave me opportunities. I think, uh, and I'd like to think that I'd done that in, in my own carriage of my responsibilities. So I think that, I, I think Denise taught me about I've already said on how to get policy through, how to, you know. And, but one of the things she also mentored me about, and I suppose I've carried that on because it made such an impression on me, was that she taught me a lot about being extremely efficient <laughs> in the way you, you carry out your duties and, and, and simple things like um, we'd be having a meeting about something and I'd be taking notes. And she would say to me, you shouldn't have to rewrite this. You should be taking the notes in a way that um, helps you frame the paper that's going to come out of this, that's got to go to the council or the academic board. And I've tried to do that in my own career and tried to encourage that in people who have worked with me on more core administrative duties. Um, I hope I've recognised talent in people. I, I hope I did that with you, Matt, because I always 
you know, you were responsible as much as I was for the first inclusion of equity issues in the University of Melbourne strategic plan. Now that is a magnificent achievement and I wouldn't have done it on my own. So I, I don't know that that had anything to do with mentoring, but I hope it meant that I was willing to accept what you proposed and carry that forward to the last chance of time. So that's the sort of philosophy that I've tried to, to use. I'd like to think I've been a good mentor. I have mentored people formally, you know, being appointed in various mentoring schemes at different universities. And mostly that's about being a critical friend, I think, <laughs> um, on the administrative side. And um, given the generosity of your time today, Lynn, um, it kind of speaks volumes of, of the, your willingness to give to others. And I'm, enormously appreciative of, of uh, uh, everything you've done for the sector and everything you've done for me and everything you've you've uh, you've done to support sort of student equity overall um one, one thing that i usually ask at the start of these uh, discussions and conversations is is a sort of question along the lines of what 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 equity means to the uh, person sitting in the sort of interview chair and, and how that might have, have uh, shaped their career but i'm going to pose that at the end of today's uh, conversation and I'm just going to bring up a quote from your PhD thesis because I think it's so well framed and so eloquently put that I think it just needs to be um, repeated um, and it says finally I wish to dedicate this thesis to my father David Martin who believed in the transforming power of education when he had little himself. As you get into the twilight years of an, of an outstanding and brilliant career, do you still believe, as your father did, in the transformative power of education? Um, the short answer is yes, I definitely do. But I, I just give a little bit of background. My father, um, he left school at the age of thirteen. He 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 was born in South Australia in Port Adelaide, which is one of the in the Melbourne context, it's the equivalent of Collingwood. <laughs> and so he he had no, his family were working class. Um, his father worked in a, in a, um, on an iron foundry um, as a Scottish immigrant. And um, he, so he had no formal education to speak of. He left school at 13. Um, and he worked as a telegram deliverer until he um, joined the services in the, in the Second World War. But he he um, he certainly had, as I said in the quote, he had little education himself, but he valued education. It's sort of almost like this talisman for a better life. And um, in fact, so this, this was the sort of environment I was brought up in. And um, uh, when I retired from the Jewelry of Health in 2011 decided to do a PhD, I said to him, I'm going to do a PhD. And he was outraged. And, and my father was quite a um, dogmatic person and, and had very strong views about what everyone should do. <laughs> and he said to me, I demand to know how you think doing this will be a benefit to your career at this stage of your life. I mean, I was 60 <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I had to sort of um, 
explain to him about uh, the benefits of, of doing things and you don't always do them for career benefits. You do them for... Uh, and, of course, I had this long-held ambition and disappointment that I hadn't done a PhD back in 1974. I hadn't finished a PhD. I'd written it up in maths. Um, but it was interesting because my father and my whole family, none of them had been to university. And so it, it, um, he, he really had no idea what going to university entailed. But when I was in grade six at, at primary school, a teacher had written in one of my school reports that the school hoped I would go on to university. Um, and this was totally foreign concept to me at that time. It didn't mean, but my father took this to heart, and um, really from that day forth, that was his aim for me. I had to go to university, and um, and everything that he then did for me in terms of um, providing opportunities for me, and it was was focused on that. So he had no real idea what that that was going to mean. But, um, you know, I, I, I certainly um, am eternally grateful for my own education and the opportunities my father gave me in, in the, you know, up to the point I wanted to do a PhD. <laughs> and he, and so I, I, I really feel that it, it, it totally changed my life. That opportunity. And, you know, I, I, I really do feel, you know, I, do, I sort of can't imagine how, how my life would have, what my life would have been like if I hadn't been given that opportunity and earned it. I mean, I, um, it was this, this life of parental pressure was <laughs> not always easy <laughs> with the expectations of what had to be achieved. But I am indeed still a true believer in the power of education from my own experience and and from what I've seen it do for other people. I, 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 in answer to your question, yes, I, I, I do believe very strongly in the transformative power of, of higher education. And as I said at the start of this, Lynn, I think there are a few people in the history of higher ed that have had um, as much influence as you in terms of making that transformative power available to so many more people. So I think um, on behalf of so many other people, I just want to say, yeah, thank you. It's been a, a, a delight to, to be able to talk with you today. Um, I think that's where we'll leave it. I wish we could talk for many more hours, but um, I'm sure listeners will agree that you're the most worthy recipient of the Order, Officer of the Order of Australia. Maybe flexed as to why it wasn't maybe bestowed a little bit earlier in your career than, than uh, I think last year it was um, uh, awarded. And... Uh, again, thank you for your time today, Lynn. It has been an absolute delight. Thanks very much. It, it's, it's, it's given me an opportunity to um, remember old times. <laughs> so, I hope that's not too boring for your listeners. Wow, that's, um, that's, it's been brilliant. It's fantastic. We just wanted to thank you again for listening to our podcast. If you're loving our podcast, please subscribe to our channel so you can keep up to date with our latest episodes. You can head over to our socials and website for some more great content, www.adcet.org.
www.edu.au.